0: Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Uh, Revelation chapter number 20, if you don't mind. We're going to continue uh, this little section of scripture, 10 verses. We covered the first part last week, but we are talking about what I would classify as the uh, sleeping beauty portion of the Bible. This is a story more or less about a prince coming to slay the dragon. And after he slays the dragon, he raises his bride with true love's kiss, as it were, and then they rule and reign together. That is the nutshell of Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10. And this is all on the heels of Jesus' second coming. He has destroyed the enemies of God that have assembled. He has taken the beast and the false prophet and done away with them permanently. And you're left wondering, what's going to happen to the devil? You know, he was behind all of this. And this is what verse number 1 says, and this is review, but it tells us there's a restraining that takes place, right? Verse one, I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit is this prison for evil spirits and a great chain in his hand. And what did he do? He laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and he shut him up and he set a seal on him, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, He must be loosed a little season. We'll see at the end of today, the must be loosed for a little season part, but this is the moment where Satan is arrested. Satan is jailed. Why? So that his primary work, a work of deception, can no longer continue, so that he can deceive the nations no longer. And we're told this thousand year period, what's happening? Jesus is setting up a kingdom and we are ruling and reigning. Verse number four, I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given unto them. This is talking about the saints. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, for which they had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had they received the mark on their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This reign of Jesus, this millennial kingdom where we get to rule and reign alongside of him. We actually sang about this this morning in our first song that we opened up with. We sang the refrain His name shall be a counselor, the mighty prince of peace, of all earth's kingdoms, the conqueror, whose reign shall never cease. What are we singing? We're singing Revelation 19 and 20 when we're singing that. That's what we're singing. Talking about this this reigning that happens, that we get to reign with him. If you want more on the kingdom and what does that look like and what do you mean reign with him, I would refer you back to last week's sermon. You can find out all about it. But you're left in verse number four with this question. It said in verse number four, the people who were beheaded lived and reigned, right? How does that work? Normally when you're beheaded, you don't live, right? And the the implication is there was a resurrection. Now, verse number five will not imply, but it will explicitly state this was a resurrection. So we get to resurrecting. Verse number five. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. You say, what's the second death? Well, Revelation will tell you. Death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. In eternity, in hell and the lake of fire is the second death. Those that have part in the resurrection, this has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ. They shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, let's just hit the pause button for a moment. What is this talking about? It's talking about resurrecting. I feel the need to help you with this because I must confess, I had very little understanding of the biblical idea of a resurrection, much less a practical idea of the resurrection, through 20 some odd years of my life. I grew up in church, like week one, church nursery, Sunday school, was there multiple times a week, all the clubs, the Awanas, the, all the stuff, like I was there all the time. And I graduated high school and left for college to go to Bible college. And I had very little concept of a resurrection. I went to Bible college, and I left Bible college after four years of theological training with a degree that said you could go be a pastor. (laughs) And I still had very little idea on the resurrection. The sum total of my knowledge on the resurrection was the PS at the end of our Easter services, right? Because you'd come to Easter Sunday, and my Easter experience was more focused on the cross. Jesus died for our sins, he died on our place, he suffers on our behalf, he takes our sin, he takes our guilt, he takes our shame, he will forgive you of your sins if you put your faith and your trust in him, all true. And by the way, P.S., he rose from the dead. That's awesome, that was it. I had no concept of what the Old Testament taught on a resurrection. I had no concept of Jesus' own words on the resurrection or especially what the epistles began to write or even the idea that there would be a quote-unquote first resurrection awaiting the people of God that my future as a believer would be a resurrected body, a resurrection experience for me. I legitimately thought of my future as like on the cloud, cousin of Casper, the friendly ghost, right? Like kind of a spirit floating around singing to Jesus or something, very Netherland, very ethereal. And I began to realize probably over the last, I would say six to seven years, what the Bible teaches on the resurrection and then the most profound thing has happened when I understood it biblically, I started to understand it practically and what it meant for my life. And I certainly haven't worked it all out or understand all of it, but there is so much goodness. There is so much truth. There's so much beauty and the idea that we too will raise and what that means for our life. And this is an idea that I would argue the early church understood. The early church had this knack where they were just remarkable. Like they would go to their death, not just willingly, but they would like be singing as they're going to be burned to death. They would move into situations that were, that were wrought with, with fear and strife and danger. Like a plague would hit a community and everybody would run, but the Christians would move in to be able to minister. And they, they were remarkable. And I look at the church today, and oftentimes I don't know that I would use the adjective remarkable to describe the church. And it's like, what's the disconnect? And I think maybe the disconnect is they understood deeply the resurrection and what it meant for their life. And my goal today, we're going to talk about the the whole passage, but simply my goal is to give you a biblical understanding of the resurrection and in turn a practical understanding of the resurrection. And if we can just get that little piece, then I will have done my job today. So here's the resurrection biblically. And you're going to have to hang with me. I'm going to just pour out a bunch of Bible on you, but it'll help you. The resurrection is really introduced in an explicit way for the first time in Daniel and the prophets, where Daniel has this vision and he begins to understand that Jesus will come and he will be a king that rules and reigns over everything, but he looks beyond that and he looks forward and he sees a resurrection. To quote Daniel, many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus takes these words and he echoes them almost exactly when he says in John chapter number five, marvel not at this. When Jesus said that all power was given unto him, even the power to raise the dead for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. Every grave, somebody's going to hear his voice and what will happen? They will come forth. They will respond to his voice. When he says arise, they will arise. Just like Lazarus came out of the tomb they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now, what's this talking about? It's not talking about Jesus' resurrection. The Jewish people understood that there was a resurrection one day awaiting all of humanity in which we would stand before God and be judged. Some would be his children and would be a resurrection of life. Some would not be his children and be a resurrection of damnation. And they knew this and understood this. And then Jesus raises from the dead, and all of a sudden, all this resurrection stuff becomes so much clearer. Because you're like, okay, a resurrection, a resurrected body. What would that look like? Like, you're left with questions, right? Is my resurrected body, am I going to look like me? Or am I going to look different? Are we all going to look uniform, like we're stormtroopers or something, like all in a row? Like, do we look the same? Am I going to be big? Am I going to be 10 foot tall? Am I going to be shorter? You're left with all these questions, right? Until Jesus raises And all of a sudden, you see a resurrected body. And the apostles would write things like this. Paul would say, Christ is risen from the dead, and he's become the first fruits of them that slept. Jesus rose, and he is the first part of the harvest that is being gleaned, and we will follow, right? Just, I'll put it this way, Jesus rose from the dead, and we're going to raise like him what he did, we're going to do. What, what he has, we're going to have. Not deity, not his, his Godhead, but the resurrected body that he currently possesses still, we will possess as well. And you might say, well, okay, what would that look like? I don't know that I can give you all of the answers to what that looks like, but I can give you enough to get you real excited. Go, if you would, to Luke chapter number 24. I almost never make you turn to two passages, but today you get a bonus passage, Luke chapter number 24. The very, very end of Luke's gospel, you find a Jesus in a resurrected body showing up to hang with some people. And you start to see a little bit of what this body would be or would not be. So Luke 24, look in verse number 36. The disciples are in a room. Their doors are locked. John tells us that. They are scared. And as they thus spake in verse 36, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. The idea is that he just popped up. Like poof, there he was. And he said unto them, peace be unto you. I would have found it hilarious if he just said boo. Like that would have been... (laughs) I don't know why my mind works that way, but he didn't say that. He said, peace be unto you. But even though he didn't say boo, they, he may as well have, they were terrified and affrightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. They're like, we just saw the Jesus ghost. And he said unto them, why are you troubled? Why, why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Handle me. See. For a spirit has not flesh and bones as you've seen me? And that is, as he had thus spoken, he showed to them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy, like they're so happy, they're not even putting their faith yet. They're just excited. And they wondered. And he said unto them, and I don't know what you ex- expect him to say, but he says unto them, You got a snack? <laughs> That's what he says. You have anything to eat? Is there any meat? And they gave unto him, him a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb and he took it and he did eat before them. You say, what's that about? Why is he, why is he eating the honeycomb? Not the cereal, the actual honeycomb. Why is he doing this? It's showing you what a resurrected body is. So here's, here's a resurrected body, what I know from this. Number one, it'll still be you. Jesus shows up and what does he say? It is I, myself, it's me. And they look and they say, it is you, right? This actually, there's a more profound moment like this where Jesus shows up in his resurrected body to some people on the road to Emmaus. And at first they don't recognize him. He's just talking and they they think he's a guy. And then he says, hey, it's me. And they look and they say, it is you. So it'll be you, but not exactly, what's you? You when you were 10? you, You when you were 20? You when you were 50? Well, yes and no. Here's the best illustration I've ever heard on this. I heard it years ago from Tim Keller. How many of you ever uh, babysat for a year or two? You were a babysitter. Raise of hands, all the babysitters. Okay? If you ever babysat a kid, maybe they're eight, nine, ten years old. And for whatever reason, you go off to college or you leave, and then you don't see them for 20 years. And they come up to you, now they're 30 years old, and they see you. And they walk up to you and they say, Hey, you know me? And you look and you say, I don't think so. And they say, it's me. You used to babysit me when I was 18. And then you look and you say, it is you, right? It, and I didn't recognize you at first, but I, I can see it now. The seeds of who you were when you were a kid have flowered into the adult that you're supposed to be. You have blossomed. And I I didn't get it at first, but when I looked deeply, oh, my word, it is you. Man, look at you. I knew you'd be good looking. I didn't know you'd be this good looking. Look at you, right? That's kind of the idea that's happening. It is still him. And when they're looking, they're saying, it is you. It's still him. Same memory, same experiences. He he hasn't lost his personality. He hasn't become a different person. It's him. But his body is spirit-like sometimes, right? He like walked through a wall. On the road to Emmaus story, actually, he reveals himself. They sit down, they eat again. And then literally, Luke will tell you, he vanished. That's what it says. He just ghosted him, like disappeared. And not ghosted like in a relationship, stop texting you. Like literally ghosted. That's why when they show up, they're scared and they think he's a spirit. Like this doesn't happen. Bodies don't do this. This must be a ghost of some sort. And he goes to great lengths. And he's like, look, touch me, feel me. Give me a piece of fish. Let me eat it, right? Why is he doing this? Because ghosts don't eat fish. Ghosts don't eat honeycomb. But he is, there's spirit, but there's also body. It is spirit, but it is body married in a way that we can't understand because we compartmentalize. Like we don't have a category for this. We have a category for ghosts that haunt us and can go through walls, right? Ever play Luigi's Mansion? You've seen that. Some of you are like, what's Luigi's Mansion? Don't worry about it. We have a category for people who cannot walk through walls and can eat stuff. We don't have a category for people who can walk through walls and vanish but at the same time can eat stuff and they have a physical body and their feet are touching the ground and you can touch them and you can see them and they're real. But that is the category for the resurrected body, a spiritual body. And Paul tells you this. If you want to get more information on what a resurrected body looks like, Paul tells you this in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what he says. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Well, what's the resurrection of the dead like? Well, here's what it's like. The body is sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. Now just let that sink in for a minute. Incorruptible, right? You put a Thanksgiving turkey on your table and it is out of the oven and it is good and the juices and it, and it smells delicious, but you don't let that turkey sit on your table for 24 hours, you pack it up and put it in Tupperware and put it in the fridge. Why? Because within 24 hours, you will realize very quickly it is corruptible. You let it sit there, it'll stink, it'll rot, it will corrupt. Some of you are experiencing right now the corruptible nature of your body where wherever your peak was, you've peaked and you're coming down and the hearing is going and the eyes are going and the teeth are going and the knees are going and the hips are going and, the, and I'm We experience the corruptible nature of the body, right? No, 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 not this body. This body will be raised incorruptible, it says. It says it will be sown in dishonor. And don't we do dishonorable things with our body often? And we should not, but we do. It will be raised in glory. It will be sown in weakness. It will be raised in power. This will be a body that is incorruptible, glorious, powerful. But here it is, verse number 44. It's sown a natural body. And raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. You say spirit or body? Yes. Spiritual body. You say, I've never seen something like that. I know. But it'll be cool to have one, won't it? Jesus has one. And you can see, what does a spiritual body do? Walks through a wall and vanishes, but also sits down and has a meal. That's what a spiritual body does. Keeps on going forever and doesn't corrupt or downgrade. So, what would a resurrection look like for us? This first resurrection, these people that were beheaded are being raised and they're giving their, their glorified spiritual bodies. What does that look like? It's still them. It's still them, but it's a spiritual body. That's our future. You say, okay, great. That sounds exciting for then. No, 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 for today. That's the biblical idea of a resurrection. And some of you are like, my head is spinning right now. Like I, had, I thought I was gonna be in, in heaven with Jesus and floating on a cloud, but I, I didn't know this. That's, this is a major truth claim of Christianity. Jesus rose, we will rise. We literally, we just sang this. Uh, we were singing Christ, our hope in life and death. And I jotted down the lyrics as, as fast as I possibly can. Unto the grave, what will we sing? Christ, he lives, Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring everlasting life with him? There we will rise to meet the Lord and sin and death will be destroyed and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore, right? What is that saying? It's saying we face death with the idea that Jesus rose and he lives and I'm gonna raise too. That's what we're singing. We're singing the truth of the resurrection. Now, what does this mean for you practically? That's the biblical, Practical, you need a resurrection. First of all, your fear of missing out needs a resurrection. Your FOMO needs it. You know what secular culture will teach you? The prevailing view in our society now is not this view. There's a big chunk of people that have Eastern religions who say the body is an illusion and suffering is an illusion, which is a whole different thing. But the prevailing view is the secular view, which is this life in this body and this physical is all we have. There is, there is no soul, there is no eternity, there is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no afterlife, there is no living forevermore, there is no reigning with Jesus after your death, there's none of that, it is this life, all we can trust, all we can lean on is what we can tangibly see and taste and feel, our empirical data, what it will give us. Everything is physical. And after this life is done, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, you go in the ground, a worm eats you and gets nutrition, and the circle of life keeps going. That is the prevailing view. And because of that prevailing view, most of our society, and some of you are caught up in it, and so am I sometimes, if I confess, most of our society is utterly frantic. Because they have a short little time. You all know life moves fast. I got a short window to do everything that I can and it's done. That's it. So I better get all the money I can get. I better uh, amass all the experiences I can get. I better eat all the good food I can possibly uh, have. I better have all the sexual experiences that I could possibly have. I better get while the getting's good because I got a short little window and this is it and it's gone. And if I don't get it now, I miss out. That's how people think. That's not how Christians think. Christians understand that if Jesus rose from the dead, we miss out on nothing. Even if you did miss it 10 years ago, you miss out on nothing. Because you understand there's a future and that future is long, way longer than life on earth here. And that future is a Bodied experience, right? So if you if you feel like, and people do this all the time, you know what? I'm getting older, my beauty is fading. I am I'm not at the peak, whatever your peak was, right? I'm not there anymore. I can't move like I used to. I can't experience life in the same way that I used to. So what do we start to do? We start to look back, we go rear view mirror. We look back and we try to hold on to it as much as we can. We'll have the surgeries, we'll take the pills, we'll do whatever we have to do, the diet, the exercise, we'll invest the money, we'll get the facelift, if it falls again, lift it again, falls again, lift it again. We'll keep doing it over and over and over. Why? Because I'm trying to hang on to what I have. And people talk this way, Christians talk this way. I remember when... I remember when life used to be carefree. I remember when I used to feel good. Listen, talk this way. I look forward to when whatever you felt at your best it pales in comparison to how you will feel then. Don't rearview mirror it. Windshield it. Look forward. Understand that this body, however I was at my peak, whatever your peak was, it will will pale in comparison to what you will have, to how you will feel. I don't know how many senses we'll have. This is just, I like to think about this. Right now we have five senses, right? Different kingdoms have different things. Like a plant kingdom has some senses. Like plants can respond to touch or light or they can feel, but plants don't see really. Plants don't hear. They don't have our senses. We have five. I don't know if a resurrected body will have 10 senses. Maybe there will be things that we can't even imagine we will be able to do in those bodies. Like you may be a tomato today compared to what you will be. Think about that. What that would be like to have that body, that resurrection. And if you believe that at your core, then you know I'm not missing out on anything. Even the immaterial things like love, Some of you, I I feel for you, my heart aches for you because you, more than anything, want to have love or a marriage that is beautiful. And for one reason or another, it has eluded you. Either you've never really had the prospect of marriage and it's never come, or maybe better yet, You've had a marriage in what you thought would happen at the wedding altar on that day, it crumbled and you realize that people were far more fickle and sinful than you had ever anticipated, both yourself and them, and your marriage is less than enviable. And some of you, it grinds your gears and that's all you want and all you crave. Do you understand when you read Revelation 19 and Revelation 20, where there is the marriage supper of the lamb and there is a feast that even the best of marriages are a shadow of what you're going to experience in the love of Christ eventually. Like there will be a meal and arms around you and love like you've never known before. And this gives you the ability, the resurrection gives you the gumption to be able to sacrifice to suffer, to give generously, to miss out on the opportunity, to not have to get everything you can for yourself because you understand I'm not going to miss out on anything. There's something coming one day, right? Your, Your fear of missing out needs a resurrection, but also your fear, period, needs a resurrection. Because we fear stuff. The polls tell us the top fears are public speaking, snakes, and spiders, how many of you have a fear of one of these three? Let's raise of hands. That's like all of you, okay? Most of the things we fear somehow, some way affix themselves back to death because we ultimately really fear death the most. Many people are terrified at the prospect of one day standing before God, having to give an account of their life and God potentially saying to them, depart from me. There are many people that keeps them up at night, and they are terrified of that. And did you read what I read in Revelation 20? Let me, let me quote it to you. Verse five, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. Happy and holy. Why am I happy? Because on such, the second death has no power. You get what that's saying? That is saying that if you belong to Jesus, you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are his, you are in his family, you are on his team, and if he rose from the dead victoriously, gloriously, powerfully, you will rise victoriously, gloriously, powerfully, and that resurrection is yours, and you do not have to fear the second death, which is death and hell which is the lake of fire. You do not have to fear that because that has no power on you. That's saying the resurrection teaches you that you do not have to lay awake at night wondering what does eternity hold? What does God think of me? Will, will I make the cut? You don't have to think that. You don't have to worry about that. There is a peace There is a joy, there is a calmness of spirit and a lack of fear that comes from knowing that a resurrection awaits us and that the lake of fire is not ours. I've told you this before, but years ago when they built the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, they had people falling into the bay to their death, like left and right. They kept losing people. So they stopped the project and they spent a pretty large sum of money to build a massive netting system under the bridge so that if someone fell, they would be caught by the net and they wouldn't die. They went forward with the project and the entire rest of the project, which was the majority of it, nobody fell. No one fell into the net. And at first thought you may say, well, what a waste of money. No, tremendous spend, tremendous. Because what they discovered is people were falling because they were scared. They were shaky and they were fearful and they were nervous and they fell. But when they put the net up and they knew that I'm going to be caught, they were far more sure-footed and they never fell. The idea of a resurrection awaiting you and The second death having no power on you is the idea that God wants to put a security net under you and let you know you're not falling. There is no damnation. There is no you going to your doom. This isn't happening so that it will produce in you a sure-footedness in your spiritual life. Some of you are constantly slipping and slipping and backsliding and and you just can't seem to get a grasp on it. And it may be that you haven't grasped the idea of a resurrection and that you are so unsure and so unconfident and so unstable in your relationship with Jesus and the security that he wants to bring to you that it causes you to slip over and over and over again. And he doesn't want that for you. God has not given us the spirit of fear. He doesn't want you to fear hell. It's not like, hey, Come into my family, but I may kick you out of my family eventually. Like, that's not what he does. He wants you to know that you cannot be fearful, especially when it comes to eternity. Why? Because of a resurrection. Your fear of missing out needs it. Your fear needs it. But lastly, I would say your family needs it. The resurrection teaches you this. People last forever. Jesus and Daniel both said it. There's a resurrection unto life. This is what we're celebrating right now. But they also said there's a resurrection unto damnation, what they call the resurrection of the unjust. We will study that next week. It's at the end of Revelation 20. There is for all of humanity a resurrection and an eternity. People last forever. There's not many things you can say that about. Your house, as nice as it may be, will not last forever. Your car, ask Brian Shannon, we just replaced his van with 400,000 miles, it will not last forever. Your clothes will not last forever. But you know it will last forever? The person on your right, and the person on your left, and your mom, and your kids, People spend an eternity somewhere. So first and foremost, you invest in evangelism and you want to share the good news of Jesus with them because you want them to have the first resurrection so that they can be happy and holy, so they can be blessed. But you also understand just relationally, you are not wasting time when you invest in people. I'm all for your house project and your honeydew list and you making the bookshelves or putting new flooring down. But guess what? That's not going to last forever. People will. It's not a waste of time to go to Erie and spend a day at the beach at Lake Erie with your family. It's one of the best investments you can make. It's not a waste of time for us to say, let's have in-home fellowships in two weeks, and let's get some Christians together in a house. Let's sit around a table. Let's break some bread. Let's get to know each other a little bit. Let's talk about our life and our experiences, and let's develop these relationships. Why do that? We should come to church. We should serve the poor. We should do something else. Yes, let's serve the poor, and yes, let's sing, and let's, let's have church, but let's invest in each other too. That's not a waste of time. Relationships will last. People will last, so invest in them. This teaches you, when you look at the resurrection, it teaches you that you do not have to be so grabby. You do not have to be so frantic. You don't have to get all you can get right now. It teaches you that you don't have to be fearful. It teaches you that you don't have to be selfish. You can invest in them and prioritize them and put the relationships first because they will last. The resurrection, the first resurrection, these are those that are blessed and happy. But the text continues and I'm almost done. It says in verse number seven, there's this rebelling that happens. Remember that whole Satan must be bound for a season part, but he's going to be loosed. Well, here it is. When the thousand years were expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. A lot I could say there, Gog and Magog is the biblical language for the enemies of God. That's the simple version to gather them together to battle and the number of whom is the sand of the sea. Now, this may scratch your head, but let me help you. Jesus has come back physically to earth. He has set up a kingdom. Our bodies are raised. We live and reign with him, but there are people that were still living on earth. It's not like earth's population was completely wiped out. And there there are humans without glorified bodies that enter into this millennial kingdom. And those people have children. Some of them die, some of them live, but they're, they're, they're regular, so to speak. And at the end of the thousand years, there's many of them. And what does it say? It says that now they are led astray and they begin to revolt and to rebel, which teaches you something incredibly massive about your heart. Because what you have in the millennial period is the devil is bound, right? What are our enemies? The world, the flesh, the devil. Devil's bound, world is bound, more or less renewed. The Garden of Eden has come back in the millennial kingdom. So the world and the devil are not big enemies anymore. But people still rebel. Why? Because there's sin in our heart, right? It's it's not, well, the devil made me do it or, you know, I just couldn't help myself or it was them or pointing external. It's all internal. There's sin in there. And they rebel, Satan leads them. Here's what happens. Verse number nine, they went up on the breast of the earth. They come past the camp of the saints about the beloved city, which some believe, and I do as well, that that's Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And listen to this, the devil that had deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, thank God, where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's good news. I'm not sure if it'll work this way in heaven, but I picture in my head an angel walking over to a jukebox in heaven and playing hit the road jack right at this moment, like it's done, he's gone. The beast, the false prophet and the devil are now permanently done away with. This also teaches you that hell is not heaven or Satan's abode. Satan does not rule hell, does not rule the lake of fire. Some people have that idea. Like it's his party and he's there and he's some sort of like torture master or something. Not at all. He's not the warden. God's in charge. He is subject. He is imprisoned. He is forever. He is done away with, right? And this is the end of him. This is where you turn the corner in Revelation and we're about to see all the stuff that people get super giddy about in this book. And I can't wait. Chapter 21, chapter 22, Satan's gone. New heavens and new earth are on the horizon. This is coming. This is a moment we're celebrating. This is, if you've ever heard the old adage, when the devil reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. What future? This future. The Revelation 20 future. That you are not victorious. You do not win the day. You are done away with. You are cast into the lake of fire. It's over. This is a moment where there should be explosive praise. And in a moment, we will see the second resurrection of the dead next week. What it would be like to stand before God, to be judged. The resurrection of the unjust. But for today, just stop. And my goal is this, I told you from the get-go. All cards on the table. Really, all I want you to do is understand biblically what the resurrection is and understand practically what that may mean for you. And I hope that this week you can be a little less frantic, a little less fearful, and a little less selfish. Maybe, take it back, a lot less. Why? Because of the first resurrection.